From VT Digger, I'm Mike Dougherty. This is The Deeper Dig. This week, Vermont schools are in their second semester of partial in-person education while the COVID-19 pandemic continues. And while most of the state's schools have maintained in-person or hybrid models since the fall, a recent push to bring even more students back to classrooms has reignited the debate over how much in-person education is safe and how much more the state should ask of educators. Hello. How's it going? It's going okay. Are you right in the middle of your day right now? Yeah, sort of. The students have all gone home for the day, so it's a little bit different. On Wednesday, I caught up with Biba Khan. She teaches French and Spanish at Main Street Middle School in Montpelier. In 2020, the Agency of Ed named her Vermont Teacher of the Year. And in recent weeks, she's been using that platform to advocate for her colleagues, writing opinion pieces in VT Digger and USA Today about how Vermont's changing guidelines are affecting educators. There are sort of several decisions that came back that made me think, whoa, everything that I've seen this year suggests that we all, we as a society really value education and schools, and they're really essential to our you know, to our society. And that became really clear, you know, in the past year. And these decisions seem to not jive with that. Those decisions include omitting teachers from the first phases of COVID vaccinations. The Scott administration has also let schools resume interscholastic indoor sporting events. And the governor has floated an ambitious goal of fully reopening schools sometime in April. Khan said it's frustrating that these changes have come down at a time when educators have already gone above and beyond to help create a safe environment for their students. I mean, I'm a world languages teacher, right? And so normally I teach fifth, seventh, and eighth graders in my classroom. But this year I am a support teacher in a pod, um, which means that I am with that sort of homeroom group of students throughout their school day. And so I am doing things like running, uh, taking temperatures and running our morning meeting and other SEL lessons, supporting them with literacy and math, and then even escorting students to the bathroom so we can make sure that they're not interacting with other pods the way middle school kids like to do. And then my classes are all virtual asynchronous classes. So I, you know, the kids have a shortened day and in the afternoon I'm planning and preparing lessons in French that go on Google Classroom that they log onto from their pod room. Got it. So you'll be in a room with kids who are on computers with other teachers? Except they're asynchronous, right? So because, you know, you can't have 23 kids all on a Google Meet or something, you know, I'm not sure anybody's, I don't think there's bandwidth strong enough for that anywhere. (laughs) But um, so I will post a video of myself teaching a concept and then some assignments and they sort of work through those independently. Got it. So you are not like speaking live in conversation with the kids? No, not this year. How does that change things? For foreign language? It's huge. You know, I am really trying to think of it as a glass half full sort of a situation. There's just less that I can do in terms of speaking and listening, right? I mean, I'm finding ways to do that. I have like, God bless Google for education and all of their add-ons. They're saving me. But there are so many amazing videos out there, you know, in the target language about various cultural aspects and things that, you know, I don't always have time for in class, you know, and so 
trying to work the, more of those things in. But it, it is definitely a very different model. And I don't get to see my students. So that's been the trickiest part is yeah. encouraging them and supporting them when I don't, you know, we don't have any face-to-face time. How are your students doing? So I think they're doing pretty well. They are, you know, I think we're all experiencing February in Vermont in the middle of a global pandemic that's been going on for almost a year. You know, I think (laughs) that they miss their friends, right? Um, And they miss hanging out with other people outside of our our pod. But in terms of learning, they have been incredibly flexible and patient and willing to try new things. Um, And I think that has been met with incredible efforts on the part of teachers to build relationships and personalize learning. You know, it's not ideal, but it it's, we're doing it. It's, it's working. Right. I mean, if that's the glass half full side of things, what's the flip side? I mean, what have you seen that the real challenges are? Well, I think initially, I mean, our district and I know districts across the state, I mean, we had to sort of completely turn everything inside out to figure out how to do this. And it took months of work by all sorts of people. Our district is usually very um, hands-off in the summer, you know, they, but I spent a good part and I know a lot of teachers did too, sort of weighing in on schedules and how things would work and trying to figure out different spaces. I teach in the gym. We've got people in, I mean, that's where my pod is. We've got people in the wood shop and the art room and the, you know, with all over the school, the cafeteria, just trying to figure out the space. So that was a huge logistical hurdle. Um, and then just the everyday reinvention of that curriculum, you know, trying to figure out how to make lessons engaging and things without some of the experiential learning or the project-based learning, the cooperative learning that particularly in middle school, you know, we really gravitate towards. And, you know, that takes a lot of work. Back when you were doing all that planning work last summer, how were you feeling generally about being asked to come back to the school building? You know, there was this huge conversation about whether or not to reopen schools, whether or not to bring kids back in person, you know, just kind of put me in your shoes at that time. Yeah. um, I think probably like most educators, those are all I thought about. I'm also a parent. So there was the trying to decide like what was best for my children as well, you know, and for me, I thought a lot about this. I, you know, back and forth, but I, when the guidance came out, I thought, okay, we are layering so many different mitigation strategies in place. And our district even is sort of adhering to these, you know, with incredible fidelity. Like, you know, I, I got to the point where I was like, I think this is the best that we can, we can do. That was sort of where I got to in the fall. And definitely my children, I mean, I may have been the Vermont teacher of the year, but they were over me, you know, so that was, <laughs> they were ready to go back and have somebody else teach them this year. So that it was ultimately, we decided that was best for, for them and their growth and development as well. When you came back, was it what you expected? I don't know exactly what I expected. You know, I think we were ex- we're expecting the unexpected. I think in some ways it was easier and more it went more smoothly than I expected. I think the students were like I said they showed tremendous flexibility and patience in terms of learning these new routines and procedures and that that went more smoothly and I give them a lot of credit for that. I think the sort of the mental and emotional drain on educators came as a little bit of a surprise, just how much of an increase the workload was. What I wasn't really anticipating was just, you know, every time a middle school student 
pushes back against a, a boundary, which was like what they're programmed to do. That's their job as middle school students, you know, and they don't stay six feet apart or they say they need a mask break or whatever, you know, and it's, I'm not a healthcare professional, right. I'm, or a public health expert. All I know is that these are the rules and the rules are there to keep us safe. And so it does, you know, it is anxiety provoking to sort of have to monitor those guidelines and those restrictions. You're kind of like balancing, letting a kid be a kid versus, you know, what the health rules that have been handed down are. Right. And sort of trying to gauge how safe is this, you know, it's not something I have expertise in. I think everyone has sort of an emotional tax of what's going on right now. It's, you know, my parents live here in town, but I haven't, you know, spent time with them since last March, you know, all those kinds of things. Educators are experiencing that as well too. And I think anecdotally, I would say we might be a little bit more cautious because we are also aware of how much more exposure we have than somebody who's working from home. When we come back, why the rhetoric around in-person education has ramped up. Hi, I'm Ellie French. I'm a reporter with VT Dicker. I know we publish a lot of news every day and it can be hard to keep up. So I produce a daily audio digest of four or five key stories that you can hear wherever you listen to podcasts. Just search for Vermont News and subscribe and you'll hear a new roundup every weekday around 5 p.m. One more time, that's Vermont News wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're already a subscriber, thanks for listening. Lola, hi. Thanks for jumping on. Hey, Mike. VT Diggers education reporter Lola DeFort has been tracking the school reopening debate since last year. I want to jump back to late last summer, there was this widespread debate about bringing students and educators back into the buildings in person. And we kind of worked through it. You know, Vermont did that in some capacity. A lot of students and a lot of educators have been back in the buildings. But it seems like recently this conversation is ramping back up. Why? Well, I guess maybe three reasons. One is that Governor Phil Scott has put out this aspiration. And I think it's important to note that it it is an aspiration. It's not like he has said you shall or uh, implied in any way that this will be a mandate. But put this aspiration out there that it would be great if all students were back full time in person in school by the end of the year and ideally April. We have a lot of work to do to help every child recover from the learning opportunities that were lost. So I've asked the Agency of Education, the Department of Health, working closely with school districts, teachers and pediatricians, to develop a plan to safely get every child in every district back into the classroom full-time before the end of the school year, hopefully sometime in April. April was put out there for several reasons. A, it'll get It'll be warmer, so I guess it's possible to maybe do some more stuff outside to open more windows. Ventilation becomes a little bit easier. And also, apparently, is a kind of parallel to this push that we're seeing at the federal level where, you know, President Joe Biden has said that he would like to see kids return for in-person instruction at the K-8 level within his first 100 days. Um, And that's also come with, like, promises of additional resources. So that's point number one, is this kind of... April aspiration. Mm-hmm. Um, number two, teachers were told that they would not be prioritized for the vaccine in this kind of most recent phase, uh, which means that they probably will not be vaccinated until late spring or summer at the earliest. 
unless, you know, we see a massive ramp up of vaccine distribution federally. So could that change? Yes. But kind of based on what we've seen so far and the timeline in front of us, teachers have basically been told, sorry. Got it. You're going to have to wait a really long time. Mm -hmm. So those two things happened. And also cases have been going up, right? And so that has increased the disruption that we're seeing on the ground in schools. We're seeing more schools close because of COVID cases. We're just seeing the general anxiety about this increase. And so these three factors together have meant that we are kind of once again in Vermont having this conversation about, quote unquote, reopening schools. As this conversation plays out, what kind of data and information do we have to actually inform the decision making here? Like, what have we learned from having schools open in some capacity throughout the fall and even the first couple months of this year? Mm -hmm. So we have learned that as suggested by research earlier on in the pandemic, you know, it does not seem like a ton of transmission is occurring within schools. And that could be because of really robust mitigation measures. It could also be because what we think might be the case, but we really don't know for sure, which is that, you know, young kids are thought to, and again, this has not been conclusively proven, but are kind of thought to be less likely to get COVID and pass it on. Hmm. And so maybe the fact that we're not seeing a ton of within school transmission is because of that, or it's because of robust mitigation measures, or it's both, right? And it's kind of hard to disentangle the two, which is kind of what makes it so difficult to have a conversation about what we should do next, because it is hard to know for sure why we have been as successful as we have been. A kind of counter to that is, well, we do kind of consistently see this pattern where when a school experiences cases, it's usually because they come in from the community and not because the schools themselves are these like hotspots of viral transmission, that doesn't mean that within school transmission isn't occurring, right? So you, you can't tell a teacher that they're safe. You know, I think there was this belief earlier on in the pandemic that transmission within schools would be vanishingly small, or really not a concern. And that's obviously not the case. Like we are seeing within school transmission. And I think a kind of really tricky part of this whole debate is that from a public health perspective, it really does kind of make sense to keep schools open with good mitigation measures in place because they don't drive community transmission. But what that ignores is the very real risk we ask the people within those buildings to assume, right? Hmm. And what's best for public health is not necessarily what's best for a lot of the individual humans who are in that building. You're saying educators here are just making a lot of sacrifices in order to make this happen. Exactly. They're making enormous sacrifices. And I think in a lot of ways, I'm increasingly hearing like the sacrifices that educators have made are being in a lot of ways used against them, right? That because we have been kind of successful at keeping schools from being these hotbeds of transmission, that we we keep asking more. And there's definitely this feeling of just kind of enormous stress within the teaching community. What about in terms of the impact to students and to the actual 
process of learning. I know that was a big part of the push to bring students back in the first place. Do we have any information yet about was it worth it? Do we know how different it's been for them having been back in person as opposed to doing remote learning? Every student that I've talked to who's doing either hybrid or in-person learning is grateful for the amount of in-person learning that they are doing. They're kind of like aware of the amount of work that a lot of their teachers are doing, like explicitly grateful for it, which is always kind of like, like there's a level of awareness that I don't know that I would have had as a teacher. (laughs) But there's also, I think this, like no one's really, no one's happy in school, right? Like no one's having a good time. Some kids are kind of thriving and actually enjoy the extra flexibility that they get with a hybrid schedule, right? Because they don't actually have to physically be in school. A lot of kids are also incredibly disengaged and depressed and struggling and feeling like they do not have enough one-on-one attention, enough um, support, uh, and enough structure, right? As this conversation is ramped back up, what have we learned about what this would actually look like, the actual nuts and bolts of taking another step towards a fuller reopening than what we have now? Well, when we talk about what a fuller reopening in Vermont looks like, what we're mostly talking about is high school, high school and middle school, because most elementary students are back full-time in person already. Um, And that's, you know, as complicated as all this stuff is, at the end of the day, it mostly boils down to the six feet distancing requirement, which Hmm. is in place for middle and high school students. And at the K to five level, it's really three feet. And so that just means you can have more kids in a classroom. And so that's why we're seeing a lot more kids fully in person in the elementary grades and less so at the high school level. So if you want to bring more kids back in in the upper grades, what you have to do is give on the distancing requirement. You know, we're seeing this debate take place on the national stage as well, right? Like not just in Vermont. And the problem with the distancing requirement is, you know, we've basically had a year of public health messaging that has said like distance, 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 six feet is this like sacred number. And a lot of people on the pro reopening side, including a lot of scientists will point out that six feet was always kind of arbitrary, right? It's not like we have good science that says six feet will protect you, five feet will not. Or six feet will protect you, but four feet will not. It is rational to be like, well, why don't we try five feet if that's what will get all the kids back in? But at the same time, because we do not know what is the safe distance, a lot of people are kind of reasonably very scared about pushing it because we have had the success that we have had with the mitigation measures that we have. And so it stands to reason that if we relax them, we'll probably have less success, right? The question is how much less, right? Will we see cases tick up a little bit or will we see them explode? It's really kind of impossible to know. I asked Biba Khan, the Main Street Middle School teacher, what she thought of the April reopening idea. What I'm concerned about is we have all these structures, and I will just speak to my experience in my district. We have all these structures and schedules and mitigation strategies in place, and they and they seem to be working. And if we had to bring back, we have a roughly 20% of our student body who chose to be remote this year. And we created a whole virtual option for them. If we needed to bring those folks in, I'm not sure 
that we would be able to do that without compromising our mitigation strategies, you know, having kids closer together, or I don't know that we have the staffing or the space to be able to figure out how to, you know, keep our current model, to expand our current model to accommodate everyone. And I think that's true for a lot of schools across the state too, is that, you know, if we, if we could have done it, I think we would have done it in the fall. You know, I, I don't think anyone's choosing to, to have hybrid because it, they think it's the easier way to go, you know? So figuring out those logistics seem really, seem really challenging. The other thing that, because there would be all these logistical challenges and there, you would have to reshuffle students in order to accommodate more people in the building. One of the things that has been working really well is that teachers have been able to sort of forge relationships, even with masks and the distance with these students. And, you know, we've all been through a rough year and having, you know, those relationships as the foundation of everything we do is really, really important. And I worry that with the reshuffling, students would end up with a with a new teacher, <laughs> you know, in April you know, with whom they may not have that relationship. And how does that serve everybody's needs? I, I just have some concerns about how it will actually play out. So what does your ideal look like? You know, what would the next few months of schooling look like in your ideal scenario? Oh, well, my ideal scenario would be, you know, that COVID would just pack up its bags and head out, <laughs> you know, and I'd be back in my classroom playing games and singing songs. What I, my ideal scenario is around reopening is to sort of have the the public health perspective be joined with the the experience of administrators and educators who are, you know, living this every day and really try to come up with solutions that make sense for, you know, on a, on a public health basis, but also, you know, for educating kids. I think also accelerating the vaccination of essential workers and including teachers would be really important to that. And I think, you know, I don't necessarily have any specific recommendations more because I think every context is really different, but I think having, you know, sort of combining those perspectives and having everyone at the table is really important. What we have learned is that education is a real priority and we need to not think about what's the least amount that we can do in order to support that, but how can we marshal all of our resources? You know, how can we really support the important work of educators? You can find more of Lola's reporting on COVID and schools at vtdigger.org. And find all of our COVID-19 coverage in one place at vtdigger.org slash coronavirus. You're listening to The Deeper Dig, a weekly podcast from the VT Digger newsroom. Search for it and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, and you'll get new episodes as soon as they land. We use music this week by Blue Dot Sessions. We'll be back next week with more stories from the Digger newsroom. See you then.